You're listening to episode 119 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Nathan Martin. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. My name is Mirban Aranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's top coaches, experts, and tennis pros to help you improve your tennis game. And today I have for you on the show, Nathan Martin from TennisFitness.com and uh, the co-creator of the Martin Method. And Nathan is chock full of tennis fitness knowledge. Um, he and Giselle... They have been in the business for well over a decade, I think over 16 years or so, and they have worked with some incredible players on the tour, and they include Leighton Hewitt, I'm sure you know him, Sam Stozer, Martina Navratilova, Jennifer Capriati, Monica Sellis, and a host of others, as well as many amateur players, and Uh, What is unique with them is they have studied not only how to train uh, top professionals, but also how to train all sorts of players from juniors and amateur players just like you and me. And I asked Nathan a whole host of questions on uh, things like how to create a training program for ourselves, uh, what types of exercises to do in the gym, proper recovery, the the benefits of yoga, uh, tracking our, our workouts, and the pros that he's trained, and hosts of other things as well. And so I think you'll really enjoy this episode and take a lot from it. I mean, tennis fitness is such an important thing. I was actually chatting with my good friend Bill after we played a set of singles, and uh, he told me that ever since he uh, really focused on his stretching and mobility, he actually stretches twice a day, uh, he has seen, in his words, it has changed his tennis game. So uh, I really think that this is a very valuable episode. Like I mentioned, Martin really knows his stuff, and uh, I certainly am 100% going to re-listen to this episode at least two more times to uh, make sure that I'm on the right path to uh, being as fit as possible. And I hope you really do enjoy this interview. And uh, so let's jump right in. So without further ado, here is my interview with Nathan Martin. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. I'm here with Nathan Martin from TennisFitness.com. He is the co-creator with Giselle of the Martin Method. And we're here to give you some golden pieces of advice on how you can improve many crucial aspects of your tennis fitness. And uh, Nathan, I really want to thank you for coming on. I, I'm, I'm really passionate about fitness because it's such an important part of tennis, and I think it's definitely underestimated by a lot of tennis mm. players as to its importance. So uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show. Uh, my pleasure, mate. And look, you know, just to get things started, I love what you're doing. You're, 
all the content you're putting out there into the tennis community. It's fantastic, mate. So I'm really, I feel privileged to be a part of this today. So I'm excited to, to get into it. Thanks so much, Nathan. And yeah, as we mentioned in our uh, chat before recording, uh, I I was speaking to my good friend Peter Freeman from Crunch Time Coaching, and then he just mentioned how how much great work that you and Giselle are doing, and that you know obviously you were on Tennis Con Three, uh, and I was as well. And so I'm really happy that we got to connect. And thanks to Pete for uh, the suggestion yeah. for sure. So uh, Nathan, first first thing I'm really curious about you know people who are doing great things in the tennis world. So I was curious. Uh, what came first in your life, Nathan? Was it tennis or was it the fitness training? Mate, it was actually the fitness training. So uh, I actually got got fed into the fitness world through my mother. She she managed a chain of gyms in um, in Australia, and I started out in there from a young a young guy, and um, just got the bug for it. From there, I was involved in sport, um, the sport in particular that Giselle and I spend a lot of time playing. It's called touch football. It's almost like sort of um, touch rugby league in in a sense or rugby. Mm -hmm. And so when we had the opportunity to branch out into tennis, we we became tennis tennis, uh, trainers. We we had a really good understanding of, you know, how players should move, um, you know, around agility and and those sorts of things from our background in playing not only touch rugby but a lot of uh, multiple sports. Very cool, Nathan. Uh, that, that's fantastic. And then, as far as like um, kind of building your tennis fitness knowledge even more, like what types of things did you consult with or read or or study to to help you really keep learning about uh, tennis fitness in particular? Look, a lot of it for us was a lot of practical knowledge. So learning learning on the run. Um, Giselle and I both. Uh, studied uh, lots of different things through our time um, in the fitness world. But the main things we did was we put ourselves around the right people, so people who were highly educated, but more importantly, people who had a lot of experience. Um, because, you know, you can read a lot of things in books, but trying to apply them in the tennis world, it's very, very challenging because a lot of players get set in their ways. So you need to be able to have the capacity to. Um, apply your knowledge, but also apply it to the personality of the player as well. So that sort of gets a little bit, um, a little bit tricky. But continuing education is, you know, it's huge in our industry because it, it moves so quick. Um, now everything's a lot more based around science, um, which is fantastic because we're getting a lot of data saying that don't do this, do that. So constantly just, you know, staying in touch with what's going on in the world um, and having access to other countries now as well. Is, is really, really important. Giselle and I are huge on that. We spend a lot of time following some big influencers and connecting with them as well. Um, we find that makes a big impact into what we do and, and the messages we try to spread. Awesome, Nathan. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot of advancement these days in the technologies and different tools and everything. And uh, I'm glad that, I mean, that's part of why you're some of the best in the business because you are really um, taking note of these things and trying to improve all the time. Um, and uh, before we get into some sp- specific questions about tennis fitness, I was curious to ask you, Nathan, what's the best piece of advice that somebody, uh, whether it be a coach or an expert or somebody else, what's the best piece of advice that somebody has given you about tennis fitness and uh, why Why is that such a powerful piece of advice? 
Oh, that's a good question because I've got. Yeah, I know there's of, tons. I've got yeah, lots of good, um, <laughs> some good words of knowledge over the years. Look, someone that I respect highly as a tennis coach is uh, Tony Roach. I consider him the godfather of coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, him being an ex-player and going through many different generations and eras of the game has given him a real broad sense of what it takes to make it. Um, and he he's very big on physicality. So he imparted a lot of wisdom onto myself in my early days as a trainer. But the main thing that really stood out to me from him was getting players to train at the right intensity at the right time. So it's not all about, you know, going 100% all the time. It's about going 100% the majority of the time. Um, And I think that's where a lot of players um, go wrong, whether it's training in the gym or training on court in particular, potentially like a lot of younger players we're finding these days, they're not really training at the right threshold on court in practice. And I always explain it to them in the sense that if you're not training at how you want to play, then how are you going to be able to play how you want to play? So you need to train at or above that intensity so that you can back it up in on court in a match, for example. So your body physically adapts and your, your mind um, adapts to, to that, that condition as well. So getting the intensity right is really important and, you know, everything stems from that in my, in my opinion because if someone has the ability to do that, they generally have the right attitude and they're going to get through any obstacles. They're going to find a way to get through situations to, to get them where, you know, to the outcome that they want. I love that piece of advice there, Nathan. Uh, one thing that you mentioned is that, that it, you know, we need to try to train um, to, to uh, um, high to high intensity most of the time. So I was just wondering uh, if I heard that right, like what would be an example of, of maybe when it's okay to not go at 100%? Yeah, good question, mate, because if we get people going 100% all the time, we, we're 100% going to get injuries. Right. So, you know, I think anything, any time a player's on court um, doing any um, coaching, so they're getting coached, so they're practicing, if it's technical-based, we always want to slow it down, break it down, make sure that they can, they've, they've got the, the sound technical background, whether it's tweaking a serve, whatever the case we always look at how we can progress things. So intensity doesn't necessarily have to be going crazy and swinging and running as fast as you can. Intensity can also mean just being focused and concentrating in the moment um, and having intensity in that situation there. So we've got the, the technical side of things. We can still hold intensity in those environments. From a physical perspective, um, we want to have players on court in particular practicing the majority of the time when they're doing like ball feeds or point play um, in practice, we want that to be at maximum intensity uh, because we need the body to physically adapt to those situations. Where And, and we also remember we spend a lot more time practicing than we do playing. Mm-hmm. So if we're practicing at the right level and the right intensity, we're going to create that habit so it becomes habitual that when we go on court, we've almost got that routine. Our body's used to doing it and everything just flows from that. Um, from a training perspective, which is, you know, it's important to get the intensity thresholds right. So, you know, when we're looking at recovery, um, obviously that's going to be quite low intensity from a physical perspective, but we also, we, we almost need to spend these days just as much time on our recoveries actually on training. Um, and so, 
it's going to be lower intensity, but we still need to have a real um, focus on those recovery principles. And when it comes to the actual workload of, of training for gains, um, that's when players really, the, the bulk of the time, we want them, you know, committing 100% to the session. To, not, to break it down a bit more, if we're looking at like a, a strength session in a gym, Mm-hmm. compared to like a conditioning session, which might be like an on-court movement session, so like an agility-based session. Mm-hmm. The agility session should be – the players should be walking off court feeling like almost like an eight, eight or nine out of a ten. The session in the gym, if it's a strength-based session, we probably want them walking out of, off, off, um, out of the gym environment around between a six to eight out of ten. Now, when you say that, walking out off court, you know, you're going to be sweating, you're going to be huffing and puffing. It's, it's, it's a different kind of intensity than it will be in the gymnasium. But we still want them to have the capacity to work at, at a high intensity in those two environments. I hope that makes sense to you, mate. But um, mm-hmm. that's, that's sort of what, how we want to encourage players to, to, to look at their training and their recovery and also their work on court. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Nathan. I mean, I can look back to, you know, uh, my my on-court agility sessions versus like my strength-based sessions. And I, I would actually say that the, those are probably like around my, um, you know, uh, what I'm feeling at the time in terms of uh, not pain, but, you know, uh, energy expended and all that. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's great, Nathan. I appreciate that. And going off that theme, I mean, sometimes t- uh, tennis fitness can be overwhelming. And that's why, you know, first and mm. foremost, if if somebody has access to somebody, a great trainer like you or Giselle or somebody else. And, you know, of course you want to go consult with them, but there's a lot of people out there who, you know, they get a little overwhelmed because you've got things like speed, strength, power, mobility, flexibility, and they want to work on these things, but they, it seems like, you know, we don't really know where to start. So I was wondering if you could give us some advice on where amateur players should, should start and, you know, how they can, you know, figure out how to build the program and figure out, you know, what to work on? Mate, awesome question. And this is really, for anyone out there listening to this, it's the, the starting point is, is everything. So we always encourage people to have a goal or what the outcome they want that, that they're shooting for. But then we've, all, we've got our starting point from there. So we know we want to get to the top of the mountain, but we're actually at the moment, we're down, down the bottom of it. Um, so having a plan is important. And that involves initially we encourage people to do some form of, of testing because we need to establish, we know we want to, we we're aiming for here. What do we need to do to get from here to here? What's my starting point? Where am I at physically? Um, what time constraints do I have that are going to restrict me from getting there? What are all of, all of the variables? We need to almost throw those into the mix. So, um, Fitness testing is a great way to start out and, you know, it only has to be quite basic. We, we keep things quite simple. It's just giving us a, a starting point and things that we can come back and retest later on and see um, how, the, how the progression um, curve is looking. So, you know, looking at flexibility and mobility, um, looking at strength, looking at, um, you know, cardiovascular um, endurance, and looking at those areas and looking at how players move, so their agility-based tests as well. And, you know, we run some, pe- run, run some tests through in those areas and from there we know what the, what the outcome we want and we go, okay, well, we actually are here now. And like I said to you before, looking at other variables, like if we're talking about a college student or 
um, an older athlete that's got all the time in the world, they're going to have two, two totally different plans and two different starting points. So we need to look at, A, how much training they can do um, off-court, how much training they can do on-court, what other influences are going to affect their progress. So, you know, what's, what are their eating habits, their sleep, sleeping habits like? Um, that's sort of the, the, the depth that we like to go to with sort of the higher-end players. For the, for the general player, though, it would just be a matter of just doing a few basic tests and assessments, um, setting some goals down, and then just put, formulating uh, a program, putting a program in place, knowing that, okay, I know my endurance isn't great, and I know my strength's not fantastic, I might try and do one or two sessions a week around those two areas, and they're going to help me get the outcome that I'm after. Gotcha, Nathan. That's great stuff. And so, um, so the the last thing you just mentioned. So, it is is it possible to work on multiple properties, uh, uh, skills? You know, at a time when I say skills, I mean you know the uh, speed, power, mobility, etc. Is it possible to train multiples of those? You know, in the same week, or is it better to you know train one fully and then go to the next? Or which one do you think uh, would work better? No, so we call them what what we call them at, at tennis fitness the system we've developed we like to use what terminology what we call threads mm. so a thread would be like um you know an endurance component um bilateral strength component a unilateral power component so we've got nine of these threads that we like to to use now going back to the testing and working out what the individual need is of the player um taking into consider consideration the outcome that they're after from there, we would look at the threads and go, okay, um, you know, Johnny's not uh, – we know he, what we're wanting to achieve this, but at the moment he's not going to be able to do that because his aerobic endurance thread isn't good enough, so we need to look at, at boosting that. Now, you can work, and we ideally every week, um, for an example, we like to incorporate all nine threads into a, a weekly program um, whether we might get more, have more focus on a particular thread because that's an area of weakness, we still will get players to work on all nine threads through the course of, of the week, um, having more focus on the area that's a particular weakness for the individuals. Or gen- generally speaking, for younger players, we've know, we know from working with them for a long period of time now, a bulk of them need to work on their mobility, flexibility and their strength. And everything from them, that's building their foundation. So those three, those threads there are important for them. For older athletes, it's, um, you know, it might be focusing on different areas for them as well, but we encourage them to still do um, all the nine threads throughout the week. Great stuff, Nathan. And uh, as far as those older players, I mean, what are usually the common threads that, uh, that, that, you know, maybe I'd say 40-plus players that they usually need to work on that you've seen? All right, Nate, that's another great question because we actually just um, launched a over-40s program at, at 10Con3. So, there you go. Um, that's, that's coming out onto the market pretty soon for everyone else. So we did quite a bit of research into this, so I'm actually I'm pretty sure I know what's going on around that at the moment. <laughs> Um, and obviously, I'm 40, nearly 45 myself, so I've, I know, you know, what training I can do and what's going on with my body also. So, look, you know, what's really important is um, 
first of all, like the mindset around training as we get older, it, it, it tends to sort of really drop off and people almost get to the point where they reside and give in to the fact that they're getting older. And look, it's a natural process of life. We all know that. Mm-hmm. But we still want to try to suck as much as we can out of our bodies. So mm-hmm. we're not going to be able to train like we're 20, but we can still train and get a lot more out of ourselves if we just sort of give in to the fact that we're, we're getting older and we can't do what we're 20. So areas that we want to focus on 100% is mobility. So mm-hmm. just getting the chain of movement. So the difference between mobility and, say, flexibility Flexibility is more looking at like static stretching and isolating a certain area where mobility is more looking at um, a chain of movement. So we call it the kinetic chain. So what's happening from the ankle joint, the knee joint, up into the hips, the torso, through to the shoulder sling. Um, That's really important for older athletes because we can start to find areas where we're breaking down, say, for example, through a rotational plane. Uh, we know that we need to have good thoracic rotation. We need to have good um, hip mobility and and everything can just sort of stem from there. So mobility is a big one, keeping up the, those chains of movements nice and open, um, strengthening up certain areas. So we get a lot of older players getting uh, injuries through their calves because the calves are endurance muscle and every, every uh, 10 years, after the age of 25, we decrease our strength and our muscle mass by about 3%. So by the time you're sort of getting to up around 50 years of age, you've potentially lost up to you know 10% of muscle mass but also 10% of your strength. And the calves are an area where a lot of players have issues with, so strengthening up the calves. And then also the same with the rotator cuff, so that anything around the shoulder girdle, focusing on strengthening up those areas there. And then and – then keeping players uh, mobile on court, so implementing some kind of a movement program for them is really important. You know the old saying, mate, you use it or lose it. It's highly mm-hmm. applicable for, for the older player. We've just got to get out there and, and, and get ourselves moving, get ourselves mobile, strengthen up certain areas a little bit, and then just get out and just keep moving on court and keep trying to challenge yourself. Yeah, for sure, Nathan. I appreciate that uh, that fantastic insight. You know, based on all the stunning you've been doing about uh, players over forty and what they need, and I'm sure that course is going to be amazing. And um, as far as uh, the uh, mobility, I mean, one thing that I've been doing recently, I'm lucky enough that my gym has uh, yoga classes, and I noticed that on on uh, tennisfitness.com, you mentioned that the, one of the focuses uh, is yoga. So I was wondering if you could mm. talk about yoga and why that can be very helpful for tennis players uh, great another great question well a little bit of a story on myself with this i played a lot of high level sport for a long period of time and i was never the kind of guy that really um focused too much on recovery um even when i became a trainer i knew how important it was i'd push it on everybody else but i sort of felt i don't have the time to do it and it wasn't until i got in my late 30s that I had a big flip around and I started looking a lot more into yoga and mobility and, and static stretching and foam rolling and trigger point release, all those things, and they've totally changed the way I, I train people now but also how I train myself. Um, so, you know, what what we want to in, in, encourage people to do is at least once a week do some form of um mobility flexibility and i've always found for myself that yoga is highly effective 
Um, you know, you only got to look at someone like like a Novak, how much um, it's it's helped him out, and he's a big advocate for it. And you can obviously see he's crazy flexible. The beauty of yoga is we're not sort of, you know, generally speaking, you're never sort of really isolating just one uh, muscle, so say the hamstring. You're normally getting in a position where there's a lot of things being challenged from a flexibility basis, but also there's a large strength component. So whether it's core stability or challenging, you know, hamstring strength, and it's really important for tennis players to be able to have that capacity. Imagine going out on court, stretching wide out for a, a wide forehand and you're on a synthetic court and the court, you, your foot slips out a little bit further than feels comfortable. If you haven't got that flexibility and strength in that position, you're probably going to tear an, an adductor muscle or something along those lines. Um, so, you know, we've found and we get really good feedback on our uh, yoga program that we have on um, online. And yoga, it's a, it's a funny thing because people, I think, a couple of decades ago had a real funny stigma about it. They were like, oh, yoga, that's some, you know, Indian thing that's, you know, been around for a long time, but we don't really know much about it, so we don't really want to do it. Where now it's just everyone's doing it everywhere and it's a lot more accepted and it's it's brilliant. I yeah. Like Leighton Hewitt was never a big guy on wanting to do stretching, um, but – he didn't mind doing yoga because it, I used to do it. So we used to do what's called flow yoga. So the, the movements would constantly be flowing. And then when I knew this is a tight spot uh, tension where he carries a lot of tension, we'd hold that a bit longer, but constantly just keeping it moving for him. And as athletes generally like that, because, you know, when they stop too long, they feel like they're not getting progress. So highly recommend people to, to get into some form of, um, of yoga. Definitely. Yeah, great stuff, Nathan. Appreciate that. Uh, and yeah, I mean, in the few weeks that I've been doing it, I've been feeling way more flexible and uh, I feel like there's certain knots that I used to have that are, uh, you know, get, feeling much better. And so I, I definitely uh, highly encourage that as well. Um, good. Yeah, thanks. And, and as far as, um, you know, we talked about uh, a little bit about like the different properties of, of fitness. So I was wondering, you know, when we're in the gym, uh, some people, they're not familiar with the different rep ranges. So I was wondering if you could define for us generally like what the rep ranges are for power and then for uh, strength. Okay. So generally what you want to do is you want to try to build up strength initially and make sure, you know, you've got good good technical and um, understanding of how to do certain lifting movements. That's really important. So we generally start people off with, more um, high rep um, variables so you'd be sitting around 15 to 20 repetitions to build up a good understanding of the movement so we start to create those habits through the movement and any look generally speaking any form of you know moving load whether it's body weight or using dumbbells or kettlebells or cables everything's going to be strength based it's not if, if you're doing 15 reps 12 reps 10 reps 8 reps you are challenging your body and your strength is going to improve. So generally speaking, we're doing more for younger and potentially, you know, in the senior bracket as well. You're looking around that 15 to 20 rep range to start with. Um, we're going to start to develop some strength there and it's a lighter load. So we're using lighter resistance. So as you move more into the 10 to 12 reps, that's when we start lifting a bit heavier loads. So we're challenging the strength. The technique's already good and we can start to up the the, the weight 
Okay, as we get down to the eight repetitions, that's when we really start to focus a lot more on sort of specific strength gains. So you're starting to lift a little bit uh, heavier heavier weights, which is going to give you a lot more increase in your uh, strength. As we drop down more into the six, uh, six to four rep range, that's when we start to look at more power exercises. So we're not doing as many repetitions, but the load is generally quite a bit heavier. Okay, and we're looking at a more explosive movement. So it might be um, like a down phase of a movement might be, you know, a two or three second um, drop down and we've got like an explosive release to come back up again, for example, and that's how we start to turn the strength and we start to utilise that to get increases in power. Um, So we're normally looking around, you know, I generally use sort of four to six reps for my power phase of, of training for athletes. And when you – there's also, you know, looking at what we call maximal strength. Mm-hmm. So that's just getting people to do one to three lifts of an exercise. That's when you, everything's a lot more advanced. We know people have extremely good technical understanding of how to do the movements. It's generally for people who have been lifting for sort of two years plus and they're lifting like their maximal weight they can lift. So if it was a deadlift, for example, if everyone out there knows what that is, or say a bench press, um, they would be lifting, they'd be pressing like as pretty much as heavy as they could for one repetition. And we use that as an assessment tool as well to see what someone's maximal strength is, and we also use it from a training perspective to increase their maximal strength also. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Gotcha, Nathan. I really appreciate that very detailed background. For the majority of of amateur players, maybe they're playing in these leagues, you know, like I'm not sure if they have the same system in Australia, but like, you know, 4-5, 5-0, etc. Um, yeah. Should they be touching the, uh, the, the, you know, the like maximal load ones, like the, the really like the lower rep ranges with very high weight? Like, do you think that's something that they should still, uh, tr- you know, train in those uh, capacities at, at certain points and it would help, help their game? Oh, look, it definitely would help them. It comes down to a couple of things. So we always look at whenever we get um, athletes lifting lifting load, we always look at a few things. We look at, A, their, their age of the athlete, so, um, you know, their chronological age, but also their biological age, so how old they are. Okay, the athlete's 15 years old, but what's their training age? Well, they've been training with a trainer since they were eight. So we know that they have potentially the capacity to start um, lifting some heavier loads, and they're really important. Those two aspects are important particularly with younger athletes to consider because you can get an athlete who's 15 and has a training age of seven years and you can compare them to an athlete who's fifth, another athlete who's 15 but has a training age of six months. They both look the same from a body composi- composition perspective but um, technically they're going to be leagues apart 
and they the the athlete with the less experience would won't have the strength in the body to be able to do what the athlete with the seven years experience has. Um, as we work into, I guess you know, old adult age brackets, we have to look at the same thing as if someone's come through a good pathway and they understand how to do the movements and they've got enough strength in their body, they're going to be able to do um, some maximal lifting. But generally speaking, I wouldn't get – look, I very rarely do maximal lifting with even even the high-end athletes um, mm-hmm. unless I've had them from, from an early age and I've been doing that with them for at least three years. The reason being a lot of times, say someone like a – Roger Federer, you think how much downtime they have to do strength training. A lot of times they really don't do much at all. They might only spend, you know, um, three to six weeks a year of really focusing on their strength in their pre-season. Apart from that, it's just more maintenance. So if you can get someone early on and you can get them their strength levels up and get them understanding how to do things, then you've got the capacity to be able to continue that on if you've never done it with them, it's very challenging to be able to get them to that point. So I would, I probably generally don't recommend sort of recreational players um, and p- people playing, um, you know, even if they're playing tournaments, et cetera, if they haven't had the experience in the gym, definitely don't go out and try and lift as heavy as you can for a couple of repetitions. Got it, Nathan. Really appreciate that uh, wonderful advice. And um, in terms of... Um, Foam rolling. I want to kind of get into that too because yeah. you you talked about that uh, before. I was wondering if 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 you have a sort of like suggested frequency or you know duration, something like that, that you know we could maybe kind of uh, kind of implement as far as like how sure. how many times a week and all that. Yeah, hundred percent. Look, three times a week, I think, is ideal. Um, mm-hmm. So you're sort of doing every alternate day. In saying that. Generally speaking, the athletes who will use the foam roller more more than others are the ones that don't really need to. They're the ones that they do it because it's quite easy and it feels good for them. Mm. It's the, the people who need to do it the most are generally the ones that don't, and the reason being well, because it's hurt. It, it hurts a little bit. It's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. What I always encourage players to do whenever we start work with a new player, we always set them a really high benchmark in the early uh, initially for like a two to four week period where we encourage them to mobilize um, every day, static stretch every day, foam roller and trigger point every day. And that's seven day, six to seven days a week. And then we say to them, look, I just want you to do it for four weeks. And I guarantee you after four weeks, you're going to feel so much better. It's not going to hurt as much. you just got to get through the four weeks, and then we're going to drop you down to two to three times a week. So it's just getting people through that initial phase. Three, three days a week is great. We get, you're going to get some gains doing that. And if people can have like an initial phase where they're doing it, um, you know, four to five times a week, then they're going to get a lot more out of it long term. Gotcha, Nathan. Do you have any tips on staying consistent with, you know, w- with this type of routine? Because, you know, for some people, they, you know, they'll try and then they'll think, you know, oh, this is just too much work. I don't have time. So do you have yeah. any advice on that? Mate, that's that's an area that we've really learned to to focus on with, with players. The reason being is everyone's busy. Everyone's, you know, we know, you know, whether it's a school student or a parent, um, Everyone has other demands besides what we give them. 
So how how you know what we give people is almost like like a luxury if they can do their stretching and those sorts of things. So we we've learned over the years a couple of tips, and and one of them would be always getting people to do their recovery when would best suit them to do it. So for most people, they finish a match or a practice session, they're probably not going to want to stick around and 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 stretch at the tennis courts. It might be cold, windy, you know, they want to get home. So we always encourage people, look, if it's going to suit you better, get yourself home, have a hot shower, have something to eat, put some music on, put the television on, then do your recovery. So every people are going to be so much more inclined to recover when they're in a nice, comfortable environment, the foam rollers next to their bed, whatever the case, and then they go through and do it. I do that myself. I do my my foam rolling and my stretching and meditation at night before I get into bed, because I know I can have a chat to, to Giselle. Um, I can I've got the TV on or I'm listening to some music, and that works best for me. And that's the feedback we've got from a lot of players that yeah, it heaps better and it's their quiet time as well. Love it. That's that's really helpful advice there and in, in helping you actually implement these uh, great habits and making them easier to, yeah. to do. Um, is there any sort of, uh, I feel like I just made this up on uh, just, you know, in my head, but is there any that's sort cool. of like, <laughs> thanks. Is there any sort of like window where we would need to stretch, you know, after playing rigorously where, you know, if it was after that window, then we could, you know, potentially uh, have a much worse off next day in terms of soreness or anything like that? Look, when when you – it depends on how hard the session's been. So if you've played like a three-hour match and it's been really hot and, you've, and you, you're heavily fatigued, it's best to generally do it as soon as you can. So you always want to encourage people after in, – in that sort of scenario, you want to encourage them just to go for a walk or a slow jog for a few minutes or jump on a stationary bike just to help sort of – flush the body out a little bit, stop stop what we call uh, blood pooling. Mm-hmm. And what we do from there is then you want to go into some form of a um, static stretch um, routine and, and, and foam rolling. I, I generally, to be honest with you, these days I, I don't really notice a huge benefit from getting someone to do that and saying to them, okay, Get, let's get you out of here, let's get you home, let's get you in a hot shower, let's get you fed and hydrated, then, then let's do your recovery. The number one reason being is I think they're going to have more time to invest into the recovery doing it that way. Then, you know, they've eaten, they've showered, they're feeling a bit better. Now it's time I'm going to allocate 30 minutes to get through my recovery program rather than straight after a match, bang it out. There is a little bit to answer your question. There's definitely a little bit more of a gain doing it straight away. Um, but I think people at the same time will invest more into the recovery if they're doing it in the right environment for them. Sure, Nathan. No, that, that's great stuff. Um, uh, one question about the you know, mistakes, because I'm sure that, um, you know, I'm going to ask you this question about mistakes and I'm sure that some people will think, oh, shoot, I'm doing that. I need to stop. So I was wondering if (laughs) you've, you've, you know, you've noticed, you know, in seeing people work out, whether it's the type of exercises they're doing or or anything else, like some, some big mistakes that you've noticed uh, amateur players doing in the gym that they should stop doing. Oh, mate, you know, (laughs) what happens is people just go on bloody instagram and facebook and they see these high-end athletes 
jumping around on a pole while they're bouncing a ball on their head and, you know, doing something else with their other hand and they think, well, you know, they're doing that. I'm going to get into the gym and do it myself. But, uh, look, we see things all the time. We don't sort of spend a lot of time in a lot of gyms these days outside of where our environment, but we have seen a lot of things in the past similar to that. So it's really, you know, the main things we need to look at is getting people to do exercises that are age appropriate and and then like look going back to what I was saying before about your training experience so how many years you've been training and who's trained you what where have you learnt from um, considering those two things should determine the level of training that you're doing so you know if someone's can't even do a bodyweight squat should they be doing you know 50 squat jumps in a session well they probably shouldn't because they can't even handle their load in a static environment let alone in a dynamic environment mm-hmm. um but look we've seen some some crazy stuff go on even you know when, when we're traveling around on the tour a lot more than we do these days we used to see stuff go on there too don't worry about that that you'd think oh that's going to blow that guy's shoulder out um so you know probably some of the biggest mistakes we see is people not probably warming up properly enough like doing they just got to do a couple of mobility exercises before they have a gym workout and you know guys generally want to go too too heavy too too hard especially if there's a few of them around um and you know potentially people you know doing the wrong sort of training that they're just seeing inappropriate exercises for them and and they want to go ahead and give them a crack sure nathan and and when we're talking about um training in the gym i mean it should we be progressing from doing all the exercises uh with body weight and then bands and then weight like is there any you know like uh, required progression on that end yeah, mate, there is. So generally what we like to do um, is start people off more doing what we call isometric work, which is mm. um, holding certain positions. So it might be like a squat, so holding more like um, like a wall sit, so just leaning up against the wall in a squat position and holding that for a set period of time. And what isometric training does, and you only need to do it for a few weeks, what it does is it just starts to switch on the muscles that we want to be engaged as we start to then encourage athletes to do more movement-based training. Mm. And they've got an understanding then from a postural perspective of, okay, yeah, my back isn't straight um, or my knee alignment isn't correct. So I can get an athlete into a, a good split squat or a lunge position and I can say to them, see the position of your foot, see the position of your knee, let's have a look at your back, let's have a look at your head position have a look in the mirror, that's exactly where we want you to be. We don't want this to happen. Now I need you to hold that. All of a sudden they start going, oh, my leg, oh, I'm burning here, I'm burning here, hold it, hold it, hold it. And all of a sudden we're strengthening up the areas that probably need to be worked on in order to keep them in that position. And then once they're used to that, then we can start progressing, progressing them more into doing body weight, increasing some light loads. And that's how we sort of build that fundamental platform um, for for strength gains, and how it's it's such a foolproof process. And you know, we we get massive results just by following those simple steps. 
Love that, Nathan. Really appreciate that. Um, one more question on on working out, at least for now, is um, w- tracking. I mean, what do you have to say about tracking? Is that something that you're you're having your athletes do, or maybe you're doing for them uh, every single session? And if if so, you know, how are you tracking it? Like, uh, what are you using? Okay, so we we use a system um, with our athletes called Visual Coaching Pro. So it's used a lot of the NFL teams. It's used. It's it's an Australian um, company, and it's basically just software that enables us to test, program, and monitor our athletes. So we have the capacity to implement some programs for them, and they can access it through their account anywhere in the world, and they can follow the programming. Now I can also create specific diary so we have a diary we created we just call it tennis fitness diary and it's got five components in it so we look at their sleep quality we look at their energy level we look at their general energy level we look at their training um, intensity so we use what's called rpe scale which just looks at the um, from a scale of one to ten how hard was the session the session was a six how long did it go for well it went for an hour and a half and that, that formulates a training load for us. And then we go through and ask any soreness, any injuries, if yes, what part of the body and everything just pops up. They just got to click and click and submit it. And that gets emailed through to us. So all, all, automatically we're looking at, you know, okay, so an athlete's not um, – they're getting some a lot of soreness, okay, but look, their sleep quality has been a 4 out of 10, for the last two weeks, what's going on with that? Why aren't you sleeping well? Oh, because of this and that. So that would be, we'd have to address that rather than if we didn't get that information, uh, you know, we could just say, oh, you're not training hard enough or you're doing too much. But when we've got the capacity to look and say a, a little bit more intrinsically, you can work out exactly what's going on. So everyone to some degree should be be monitoring uh, what they're doing, whether it's you know, tracking um, their training progress, so writing down what they're doing in their training. So following a program is obviously highly important and then tracking how their program is going. Um, just simple ways, even just getting people to write down, you know, um, what their sleep quality is like, how their body's feeling and how the session was. Those three areas there are and they're really easy to do. People can just pop them down into their notes on their phone or onto a pen and paper into a notepad and, and generally over time they'll start to see um, some patterns occurring and what sort of habits they're, they're following also. Love it. Uh, love it, Nathan. And, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned this already in, in the intro that I recorded, but, I mean, you, you and Giselle have trained some incredible players. I mean, uh, Leighton Hewitt, of course, Sam, Sam Stozer, uh, Martina Navratilova, Jennifer Capriati, uh, uh, Svetlana Kuznetsova, Monica Seles. I was curious, of all those players, um, which, in your view, I'm sure that it's subjective, which, in your view, is the fittest one that you've ever trained? <laughs> um... I'd say probably the fittest would would probably be Leighton mm-hmm. because his game was you know it's so based yeah. around that. Where you look at someone like Martina, and she definitely hands down was the most all round athlete. Mm-hmm. I mean, Giselle started working with her when Martina was forty five years old. She'd come out of retirement, 
Mm. And what she was doing at 45 was amazing, like just crazy. And I know I knew she'd kept herself fit, um, you know, in her when, when she had retired. But mm. you know what she could do. She and I was, you know, in my mid to mid mid twenties at that time. She would, you know, keep up with me on a lot of things. Um, she'd always actually have a have a dig at me, like you know, come on, I'm 45 and you're you know you're you're 27 and you can't keep you, I'm keeping up with you on these 400s or whatever it was. And mm, wow. um, so she she definitely hands down was was the best athlete to date that I think we'd, we'd work with as from a whole all-round perspective. But Leighton definitely was, if we look at the at the numbers and the sessions that we used to get through, he's his biggest strength and I used to tell him this all the time because it used to it was great for his confidence going into five-set matches was his capacity to just keep going. So, you know, we'd bring lots of different people in um, over our 10 years together because I just didn't want to train within myself all the time because it just would, you know, the motivation wouldn't be there for both of us. So I had him training with like MMA fighters. I'd have him training with wow. professional jockeys and just pe- different people that had contacted me or people that had, had fallen in our pathway and a lot of professional athletes. Now, a lot of them had come in and they'd be super pumped to train with him and what would happen was the first day they'd be all over him, they'd, they'd you know, They'd be doing really well, keeping up with him sometimes, or a lot of the time even doing better than him. But two days in, they'd, they'd start to get sore, energy levels would drop. After three, four days, they'd loft more often than not ring up and go, oh, mate, sorry, I can't come in, I can't move, or something's come up. Or And he'd be like he'd be like a, two, a one, two, three out of ten. He'd be like, no, I feel okay after doing the sand dunes for an hour and a half where everyone else would be like, oh, you know, oh, mate, I can't move. And that was his greatest strength um, was just the capacity just to keep going day after day after day. Mm. I mean, was that like just purely by how much he trained or do you think there's also some sort of, uh, I don't know, gene he had or, or for his yeah, recovery or 100%. what? Body composition for him was huge. His genetic pool. Mm. I mean, his dad was a an ex-professional athlete and his mum was a high-level athlete also. And I look at his children now as well and they're, um, you know, I'm, I'm helping cruise his son out. He's, he's nearly 11. I'm helping him out with his training. And, yeah, he's in the same mould. And, you know, a big part of it as well is the mental aspect. Like Leighton learned from a young age that I'm not going to be a big guy. I need to get a lot of balls back and that means I've got to be physical. I've got to get up and every morning at a young age he was getting up, he was running five kilometres, then he'd go and jump on court, then he'd play sport at school and he did a lot of different sports. So it just got embedded in him from a young age that you just get up and you get on with it and you keep going. And his body fortunately could could back it up where I don't think I've trained anyone like him since. There's a young guy I started working with in Australia now. He's our number one junior. Um, Dane Sweeney, and he's he's got a lot of latent in him, and I'm actually really excited to see what we can get out of him physically, um, because to be honest with you, if if players don't have the capacity to go day in day out training um, at the level they need to, there it doesn't matter what their talents like if they can't back that up. I mean, you only got to look at you know a Nick Kyrgios or someone at the moment; it'd be very hard for him to win a slam. Everyone knows he's got the, the talent, but physically he can't back it up. He can't play seven matches over five set matches over two weeks and win a slam. 
he'll go. He could probably go close, and he could beat a Roger Federer in a four-hand or something like that. But can he back up and play five sets again the next day against someone that's going to be at a very similar level? Right, Nathan. And yeah, whenever I see uh, Alex de Menar, I, I think about uh, Leighton, obviously, you know, the Australian connection. He's just so, so quick and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just want to sneak one question in about, you know, because you, you know, you're a trainer on the ATP WTA tours. So I was just wondering if I could just generally ask you about what that experience was like for you. Oh, mate, it was fantastic. So we, we had about a 15, you know, 15 years um, on and off the tour. We had a, a strong, you know, phase where we were on it for four years pretty much every week. Um, and, look, the, the good thing with the tour is the tournaments change a lot and how they're set up and what goes on internally within the tournaments. Player comfort's really important. Um, uh, the number at the forefront for tournament directors from a sort of training perspective, yeah, things have changed. A lot more emphasis is on recovery now than mm-hmm. it used to be back, you know, sort of 15 years ago. Um, but from a perspective of how the, how the players act and how they treat each other and those sorts of things, not much has changed. It's, it's quite a – it's a very interesting environment because it's almost like – you're going into a battle zone. You don't know who your battle is going to be against, but you know that there's a hundred other, and your slam, for example, you know there's a hundred other people that you potentially could be going to war against. So where do you build your alliances? Where do you spend your time? Um, what do you tell people? It's, it's, it's quite challenging around that, and it was, it was quite hard for myself and Giselle because I'm a real people person, and... You know, I could be in a lift at a hotel and connect with someone from Estonia or a coach from Estonia and get on really well with them and the next morning have breakfast with them and their player could be playing one of my players the week later and it's like, well, some players don't that you're working with don't want you chatting to the competitors. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lot of being able to manage um, your player and then how do you handle yourself outside of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to have the capacity to be good with people and understand in particular your player what what the, what are their needs and within their needs what um, how are you going to get the most out of them because someone mightn't like doing a lot of stretching but you know they need to do it and if you try to do too much of it with them they're going to say to you mate see you later I, I don't want to work with you anymore where we were lucky everybody that we work with we were with for a long time because we understood that one principle you know what? What are their what are their boundaries, and what are my boundaries, and how can we how can we work through that together to to, to make it work as best we can. Mm, great stuff, great insight there, uh, Nathan. Appreciate that. And so, I obviously want to uh, ask you a bit more about um, you know your your great uh, platform, uh, tennisfitness.com. Uh, I was yep. wondering, you know, what, to ask you. What makes um, uh, you guys, uh, TennisFitness.com and also the Martin Method, like what, what makes that different from other uh, tennis fitness programs? Uh, look, I think all, all trainers at our level are, are doing similar things. Like we all follow very similar systems and – you know, we all learn bits and pieces from from each other. We we definitely never go around saying, oh, we're the best at what we do and we know everything because we don't. There's a lot of things that we still don't know. 
that we're constantly trying to learn. So I think a big point of difference from us is we're, we're quite open-minded and we're always always looking to, to, to learn new things. Um, I think following our, like our nine thread systems has been really important for us. And so that gives us clear structure on like the way we develop that, that system. And that's really what the Martin method is. It's, it's the nine threads that we follow. Mm-hmm. And when we designed that, component of of our program and we said okay let's let's think about the ideal player what's the ideal tennis player or who is it it's a combination of these players and what are their attributes what do we want to what do we want to try to instill physically into our players that we work with and that's how we came up with basically the system that we use so we have that and then within that we have like developed um, what we call our seven court principles so our court movement principles so, you know, what are the attributes that a player needs to be able to fulfill on court? So we know they need to be able to have good coordination. We know they need to be able to break or decelerate effectively, accelerate effectively, have good multi-directional movement. So these are all just, I guess, systems that we've developed over time that probably a lot of trainers haven't had the capacity to do just because I guess we've been in the game for so long and we've seen at the top level and now um, our focus is working a lot on, um, I guess, the social and amateur player and, and in particular the, the junior development. So, you know, working with high-end players, you learn, okay, that's great, this is what happens up here, and, wow, these guys can do amazing things, but how do you drop that back down and, and work with players that are nowhere near that? And so I think we've had the capacity to be able to sort of fulfil the, the bridge between those areas and learn a lot what has to happen within that that area to get the most out of everything for everyone. Yeah, thank thank you for that, Nathan. And uh, you know, as you mentioned, every, you know, we're all learning. Even Roger Federer, who is the best of all time, is learning. And so that's one thing that makes yeah. uh, makes you makes you and him and everybody uh, great who's at their highest levels. They want to keep learning. And uh, yeah, I, I can definitely. I really appreciate uh, the great work that you're doing. And then, as I mentioned, you were on TennisCon 3, and, uh, you know, that's an event where uh, Pete has only found the best in the world at what they do, and, and you're one of them. Um, and, and, you know, in, in addition to uh, the program, I mean, what, what types of services uh, do, you, do you offer? Uh, I mean, do you, you also have in-person training and, and courses and anything else that you might have as well? Yeah, I'll explain it quickly to you, mate, so everyone can get a bit of an understanding. So we have um, like our online programs, so they're more like um, people can just buy them and they just will follow them on the, the, the programs on their own. So they, they, they don't have any contact um, with us when they purchase those programs. So we have a range of programs from junior development programs to high performance program to a seniors program, some court movement programs. Um and moving on from those, we've developed what we call the Tennis Fitness Academy. So the Tennis Fitness Academy is more for uh, the higher, high-end athletes, so, you know, uh, national ranked or state level um, junior players or older players that are competing at a higher level. And that's when we offer them either like a monthly programming and support, we Skype call them, um, we set all their programs, we help manage their their training and their energy levels, and then we basically just start to nitpick what what's going to give us the biggest bang for buck, how can we get the most out of this athlete by changing certain things, so going a bit deeper into what they're doing, you know, with their sleeping, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we also offer that service for academies as well. So 
academies that want to get some programming down pat so they might want like a 20-week training block we can facilitate that and set them up with that and they get all their content all the video footage etc is all online and we just have constant contact with them via uh via online communication um yeah so they're sort of the the, the the products that we offer and we're getting fantastic results we've been doing this full time now for um just over a year but before we were doing a lot more face-to-face training with athletes we're doing less and less of that now and we're doing more of the online coaching and and online program sales and it's going really really well we love connecting with people like yourself that are that are influencers in the industry because you guys have got your finger on the pulse and you're really well connected to um to the right people so you know thanks thanks a lot for your time today and love answering these questions mate thanks so much nathan really appreciate your time and uh, uh where can we follow you on social media by the way Yep, so we're on Instagram um, and we're on Facebook. So if you just put in um, Tennis Fitness um, AU, you'll find us there. And, yeah, we've got pretty good following on Facebook. We've only really been had Instagram going, um, I think, for about the last six to eight months. We've had a bit more focus on it. So we'd love people to jump on board and help support us and help share our content around. That'd be fantastic. And uh, you can jump online. Honestly, anyone out there, if, if you've – you want any you want some help you want some advice if you feel stuck in the rut or you've got young players you're working with we generally just want to help as many people as we can we want to share our knowledge and uh, we want to connect with as many people as we can and just take this beautiful game as far as it can go thank you so much nathan uh, for your time you guys are doing great work and uh, it was really a pleasure chatting with you and i know you probably have an appointment to go to right now so uh thanks so much and uh wish you all the best and i hope to connect with you in the future maybe have no you problem. on tennis summit and uh, uh take care no problem you keep up all your good work too mate you're making a big difference thanks a lot appreciate that nathan you too uh all the best to you all right catch you mate you too take care All right, I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Nathan Martin from TennisFitness.com. And if you did enjoy this interview and found value from it, then I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that on the podcast app that you use to listen to the show. Uh, For many of you, that is Apple Podcasts. So if you could uh, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review... And the link to go to that would be tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts or tennisfiles.com slash iTunes. Either one of those will work. I'd really appreciate a review and it would help bring more visibility uh, to the show on the different platforms. So I would really appreciate a review and it would also help me to improve the show, which I'm always striving to do and uh, striving to cater to to your needs. And uh, any way I can do that, I would really appreciate you letting me know. And as I often like to do at the end of the show, I will leave you with a quote. And this one is by Oliver Wendell Holmes. And Oliver said, the mind once stretched by a new idea never regains its original dimensions. Love that quote. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Tennis Files podcast. A special shout out to Nathan for coming on to the show and giving us a lot of great uh, value bombs on the show about tennis fitness. And I'm looking forward to creating 
many more great podcast episodes for you. Uh, so feel free to email me at mirbon at tennisfiles.com. That's M-E-H-R-B-A-N at tennisfiles.com to let me know what you want to hear about on the show. There's a whole multitude of topics and I'm ready to find out the best guests or to talk about these topics myself that'll to, to help you maximize your tennis potential. And uh, please, you know, don't just listen to this episode, but also take note of it, uh, ideally on a piece of paper or in, in a Google Doc or something like that, Microsoft Word, and then uh, pick out a couple of these pieces of advice and actually implement them because that's always the most important thing. I feel like a lot of times we undergo information overload where we're just learning, 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 and then we're not actually putting anything into practice. So uh, don't just listen, but also block some time out in your calendar to put what you learn into practice. So that's my daily wisdom for the day. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for listening to this episode, and I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.